0: We're in finishing up our chapter in 1 Corinthians 13. Follow along read with me as we read 8 through 13. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, those will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Today we complete our study of 1 Corinthians 13, commonly called the love. In the previous verses, the Apostle Paul's described what true love is. We can note that he didn't describe passionate kisses, He didn't describe butterflies in the stomach sensation or intimate activities with a beautiful person. Those are certainly valued aspects of a loving relationship, but if that's the sole basis of the relationship, likely it won't stand the test of time. Paul describes love using the word in Greek that represents the highest order of love one can give, agape. He goes on to relate that love embodies some of the hardest attitudes and attributes and values that one can achieve. He starts with patience. We all struggle with patience. Hurry up and wait is our motto. We hear that too often. and I need patience and hurry up and give it to me is more what we think. It's difficult to wait on something we want really badly. It's hard to remain resolute and to persevere in trying times and situations. Patience is a valuable virtue and ultimately it means for one to be or develop patience, one must set aside one's immediate desires and that's near impossible. We want what we want and we want it now. We want it our way. Then he moves on to being kind. Being kind takes a special kind of strength because the one to whom we must exercise kindness is often the one you want most to wring their neck. It's easy to be kind to one who's kind to you. Jesus addressed that. You know, we'll love somebody that loves us, but he says, love your enemies. It's not so difficult being kind to one who is important to us, who we value, but being kind to that neighbor or co-worker that gets on your last nerve and whom you're sure is trying to expose that last nerve. And it gets to the very core of our resolve, and that's one of the hardest efforts we make. Paul then continues to describe our actions and attitudes towards others, to build them up as opposed to tearing them down. That's hard, too, because we've come to a place so much, and I think even more so in our society, that i got to look out for me. i got to build me up. i got to make sure I get attention. But the Bible teaches us to edify the others, and so we resist that cutting or snide remarks. We hold our sarcasm and veiled criticism. We let the other have the limelight to build them up in the eyes of others when our ego screams for recognition. Love places value on truth. Protecting others, trust, hope, those are values. Love includes the tender kiss, sometimes on the forehead, sometimes on the lips. Love is felt in the hug that says, I care, I'm sorry, I admire and appreciate you. Love is a time, and love is time. And taking time just to be and love is captured by laughing together at a shared experience no one else understands. Those jokes, those stories between a couple, those looks that, everybody else rolls their eyes at and wonders what on earth is going on. It can be with a friend, a spouse, a coworker, somebody you're closely connected to. Our life is made richer by true deep long-lasting love that stands by us when we're wrong or being a jerk. Paul concludes this treatise on love by summarizing the greatness of the supreme love that he has described. The ability to share knowledge of God's Word is a great facility. That's prophecy. That's the New Testament word for prophecy. It's not foretelling the future. It's forth telling the truth. Very important function to tell God's truth. That ability to share that knowledge, that is prophecy. To be so infilled and controlled by the Holy Spirit... To be able to speak in a heavenly language is miraculous. But it's not everything. To have great knowledge and be beneficial can be beneficial and helpful for those around us. But Paul says all of those will cease in importance. And parenthetically, I'll add that because he teaches that those will cease when the perfect comes, that leads me to believe nothing is taken off the table now. God may not use it as actively as he has used things in the past, but he he reserves that right and that privilege to do what he wants within his people. So just as a child outgrows childish behavior, so we too one day will grow beyond these earthly values, and what we think. Right now, it is apparent we only see through a glass darkly. When we try to understand God, when we try to understand heaven, it is clouded by our worldly mentality. It is clouded by our ego, by our selfishness. All of these things hinder seeing what God sees. And that's one reason the Bible talks so about wisdom. Wisdom has been defined as seeing things through God's eyes. Knowledge is is important, is good, and helpful. But that knowledge needs wisdom for correct application. And so we need to seek that wisdom. That will help us see more clearly the things of God. And so that being the case... And if it is our desire to seek that which is enduring, then how do we do that? Three attributes remain for the duration of time. Faith, hope, and love. And the end with the greatest of these is love. The Pharisees constantly were testing Jesus, as were the Sadducees. In our passage in Matthew 22, Verse 34, we have the account. You can read along with me. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, two groups there in the Old Testament times, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they didn't necessarily like each other. They were kind of like two denominations arguing their way and who was best. So the Pharisees probably got kind of tickled that the Sadducees got silenced. So they took a turn. The Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now I don't know if he was really trying to learn. Very often when the Pharisees came to Jesus, they were trying to trip him up. They were trying to see if he would say something contrary to what was taught about Mosaic law. The best example of that is when the woman in adultery was brought to him. That was a test of him. Of course, he passed every test with glowing colors. Which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Jesus' quote there harkens back to Deuteronomy 6.5. When Jesus said, let these words be on your heart, wear them as a phylactery on your forehead. That's a little box that they used to put scripture in and they would tie it around their heads and keep it right here as a reminder of God's word. And that's what it says in Deuteronomy 6.5. Little different language, but meaning the same. Love The Lord your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. They were probably expecting him to refer to the Ten Commandments. Which one of the Ten Commandments is the greatest would be in their mind, I would bet. And they might have suspected the first one, Thou shalt have no other gods before you. And that is encapsulated in what Jesus said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart. You love him completely, you shall have no other gods before you. And then as he goes through those, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Set aside that time in the week for worship. And we're enjoined in Hebrews especially, to forsake not the assembling of ourselves together. We need that corporate worship. It strengthens us. It helps us. It encourages us. And too many stray from it doing their own time and thing. And it's sad because they're missing out on that worship. And I, I, I encourage you that you're here listening They may, when you get past those first few commandments, then you get into commandments about the neighbors, really. Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not bear false witness. All of those are things directed towards people. So the first one's directed towards God. The end of the commandments directed towards people. And so they were testing him on this. It doesn't tell us what their... Uh, reaction was in this case but they certainly couldn't refute the Lord God and he did encapsulate those commandments and those two things it's especially poignant because the Pharisees had made it their lot in life to try to define to the microcosm how everybody should live they micromanaged they came up with all kinds of rules trying to define how one should do. And many of them seem so restrictive and really are oppressive because if you were a tailor that made clothes, that, that altered clothes, you might keep pins in your lapel that you could pull out at a moment's notice and do some stitchery. If on a Sabbath day you missed one of those pins in your lapel and went to church, you were guilty of working. If you walked more than a certain distance on a Sabbath, that was guilty of work. If you looked in a mirror to check for stray hairs, you were guilty of vanity. And so they had, a, they had created over 600 rules and regulations And people, we do well remembering 10 of them, much less 600 of them. So when Jesus came, he often spoke to them and he criticized them and he chastised them for how they oppressed the people. Jesus said, I have come to set men free. He said, I have come that you might have life and that more abundant. And here all their rules and regulations were weighing the people down Where it was hopeless, there really was no way to accomplish all of that. So he he distilled those laws of the Old Testament down to two commandments. Love the Lord thy God and love thy neighbor as yourself. And he closed by saying all the other commandments rest on those two. And I think it's poignant, especially for our series we're doing, especially for this month of love that we talk about, That when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment, he said love. Loving the Father, loving others. He didn't didn't say any other thing that we could pick out, but love. Sometimes words in one language have different meaning than another language, but make no mistake. Our English word command here means just that, a command. They said, What is the greatest commandment? And Jesus closed by saying, The other commandments rest on these two commands, he called them. A commandment means an order, command, charge, precept, injunction, a prescribed rule in accordance with which a thing is done. So they're not the ten suggestions, they're not the ten nice ideas. And these are not the two greatest suggestions. Jesus commands them. Love the Lord your God completely. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And I think every one of you is like me. I like to take care of Wes. I like to see that I have food. I like to see that I have the right kind of food I like. I like to have clothes on my back. I like to have a comfortable car or a comfortable house. So I tend to take care of self pretty good. You do too. And we're to show that love towards others. Jesus clearly said and meant that these two actions are commandments that we are to do and learn to do. That first commandment relates to our vertical relationship to God. Our creator. He's our sustainer. We are commanded to serve Him with all our heart, our core essence that drives our values that we embrace. All of our soul, that which makes us uniquely who we are, and all of our mind, our purpose, including strength to pursue that purpose. So to paraphrase, we're to love God with every ounce of who we are, continually, constantly and consistently. Next, we're to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. Our neighbor represents everyone who comes into our sphere of influence. Jesus made that so clear with the story of the Good Samaritan. The man, you know the story, was beaten up by robbers, left to die on the road. Some religious leaders came down the path They not only saw him and didn't do anything, they moved to the far side of the path so they wouldn't be uh, sullied by him. But a Samaritan stopped. Samaritans were hated by the Jews. They were seen as half-bloods or even worse. They were seen as, as a mixed race. And they were. They were a mixture of the Jews and the other people that had conquered them. But it was a Samaritan who saw the person as his neighbor, who took time to stop his trip, to get off his horse, to take the person, to to minister to him as best he could, but then take him to a place, pay for his lodging, and to pay for his upkeep, and he promised to come back and make up any payments. That's the one who loved. Not the ones who touted the rules, Not the ones who wore the fine robes, who stood in front of the people demanding respect, but the outcast, the mixed blood, the mixed breed, if you will, who took the time to care for a stranger that needed help. We are to love our neighbors as ourselves. And our neighbors are those that come into our sphere of influence. And make no mistake, the Greek word used here for love, towards God and love towards our neighbor is the same. It's that agape. It's that highest love that one can give. It's the love that God showed towards us. We don't accomplish that overnight. We don't accomplish it really in a lifetime. It is a constant process and struggle for us growing towards that love of Jesus Christ. To love and that depth that he loved. But the fact that it's a lifetime journey, the fact that it's a lot of work, the fact that it's hard does not excuse us from pursuing it. We are commanded by our Lord and Savior. The great Paul, most educated, most zealous for his faith, especially even after he became a Christian, very zealous. Paul expressed of himself, recorded in Philippians 3.12, Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. Christ took hold of you for a purpose. He took hold of you for a reason. The very foundation of that reason was his love for you. But building upon that, his reason was to give you that abundant life, to give you the sure knowledge of life everlasting with him in heaven, and to give you purpose in life by showing love to other people who need to know him and know his love. He called you according to a purpose. He called and took hold of you for something Paul pressed towards that bark. The picture is of a person running a race. And if you've ever been on a track team, if you've ever watched uh, somebody running, you'll notice at the very end when they get to the tape, they'll jut their chest out. They're pressing to be the first one to cross that finish line. And that's the picture here that Paul is teaching. Not just kind of lazy-daisical, going about the process, If it's convenient, I'll do something. If it's not, I won't. But pressing towards the goal. So we are to press on to become like our Savior and Lord. We are to press on to lay aside our worldly behavior, our thoughts, our worldly actions, so that who we are more completely reflects Jesus Christ. And so part of our morning prayer can be, Lord, show me where I've got a glitch in the mirror. Show me where there's a crack. Show me where it's fading or where it's dirty. Because I want to look just like you. To accomplish becoming like Jesus. We allow the Holy Spirit who indwells us when we become His child to lead us, to guide us, to examine us. Every Christian regularly, not in a not in a, an attitude of deprecation about what a lousy person I am, that's another story, but, but in the desire to serve God, to say, Lord, what is it where I'm falling short that you want me to address today? When I was in college, had an apartment by myself in Atlanta, doesn't have anything to do with it, but I was able to meditate without a roommate uh, making noise. And I remember a time, I call it going into fibrillation. You know how, what fibrillation is. I think it's where the heart just kind of quivers and, and can't pump blood like it's supposed to. And so one way to fix that is to shock it, to get it beating the right pattern to where it moves the blood. I felt like I was in fibrillation spiritually. And what I mean by that is I was so intensely aware of the shortcomings in my life that I was overwhelmed. I didn't know which way to go. I didn't know how to live for God. Yeah, I could go through the motions, but that wasn't really satisfying. And then I don't know if I heard it through a sermon, if the Lord just spoke to me. I don't know where it came from. But the thought came to me, why don't you ask me what I want to address? You see, God knew the most important thing He needed me to do right then. And so I learned to start asking Him, Lord, what is it that's standing in the way? Lord, where, what is it that's, that's uh, hurting you the most that you want changed? And then as He revealed it to me, To surrender, to say, yes, Lord, I confess first, and then I repent, I'm going to turn from it, help me, Lord, to accomplish that. And sure enough, he did, he worked through some things, and then guess what? He brought up another one, and I would address that, and he brought up another one but that's what walking is but all of it is gradually drawing us from a worldly sphere down to being like Christ but i didn't need to fibrillate i didn't need to worry about each and every little thing in my life i didn't worry that i didn't need to worry that did i pray for the right parking space did i did i pray for what lunch i should eat today some people get that intense in their faith And it's not wrong, but it can cause that fibrillation. Instead of yielding to the Spirit, resting in God, trusting Him to tell you what it is He knows you need to accomplish first and most. So we press on to become like our Savior. To accomplish that, we allow the Holy Spirit to examine Him. And that's useless unless we willingly lay down His life we surrender to what and to give up that what is contrary to God's desire for us. Further, we take on the mind of Christ and His desire that all mankind should come to receive Him as their personal Lord and Savior. You can ask yourself, Lord, what do you want me to do? First thing on the list is tell others about Him. That's the first thing on this list. He'll work on other things along the way to help you do that better and better, to have habits, not stand in the way of your testimony or witness. But what does He want from you? He wants you to tell others about Christ. 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, but He is not willing that any should perish, but that all might come to eternal life. John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. 2 Corinthians five twenty. we are ambassadors for Christ. Love is warm, fuzzy feelings of happiness and joy, but it's so much more. Love is making hard decisions and taking hard actions for ourselves and those over whom we have influence. It entails fun and it entails difficult decisions. It is laughing together and crying together and sometimes alone. Jesus never said in his word, the road is easy. He said his yoke is easy and my burden is light, but it's still work. A yoke represents work. You put a yoke on oxen or mules to do work for you. He has work for us to do. But he said he would always be with us. Lo, I am with you always. And he does that through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the person of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I must go. But if I go, I will send another who will come and be with you. And he will teach you all things. He will give you wisdom. He will speak of the Father and you will hear. So we have the Holy Spirit living within us to enable us to accomplish what God has for us to accomplish. To accomplish that supernatural work that we cannot accomplish within ourselves. He does not leave us unequipped. We as a body of Christ located at 8320 Main Street in Campbellsburg, we are that body and we've not yet obtained it, that pressing on but I believe we are pressing on to the calling of Jesus Christ. I perceive, I see you as a body of believers who are seeking to grow themselves, who practice love towards others, and who are developing deep loving roots one for another. Why wouldn't this be a place to come to be a part of the family? We're not perfect, but we worship the one who is. We don't know it all, but we seek truth from God's Word. We occasionally veer from the right path, but we come back to the road of God. God has led you here. He's kept you here. Trust Him that here is where you need to be. He invites you to be a part of this family. He's brought you in. We invite you to be a part of this family. The first step of that is personally receiving Him as Savior and Lord. I trust each of you have done that, but only you know in your heart. And God knows if you've made that decision. We can't judge. I can't judge. We can look at fruit and assume. But our examination is not the critical thing it's what God says to you inside do you know him in this personal way do you know his love as I've described it today do you know that you need that love you need his death on the cross you need his propitiation for your sin that's personally accepting him as Savior and Lord and today is the day of your salvation I wish we all had a guarantee of a long, long life. I wish we had a guarantee of tomorrow. We don't, though, do we? We know too many who have drifted from this world suddenly. Don't wait any longer. If you're drifting in this world, seeking a place to belong, we've got open arms of the Savior saying, Come. We want to welcome you hug you in fellowship and the family of God today. There's no reason to delay. You won't find a perfect place. But you can find a place that upholds the Word of God, that preaches His Word, not man's Word, that preaches His doctrines, not man's ideas, and that seeks to love others, and you do such a good job of that. So we're going to go into our invitation time now. Our invitation hymn is Jesus is tenderly calling. And right now, He is tenderly calling. He is patient with us. We can abuse that patience. And if we will understand Scripture, There is coming a day when his patience stops. And those who have not received him will go into eternal darkness. That's not what he wants. He's not what he's choosing for you. He's inviting you to come to the light of salvation. Let's stand and sing.